Well, we sure have our attention on the Lamb of God. Let's turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 1, and also we are located at Hebrews chapter 8 in this heaven-sent homily, I like to call it. I believe my eyes spy Mark Gillis back there, do I? I want you to know that Mark served us selflessly, and I mean selflessly and sacrificially for many, many years, and he did it quietly, he did it as a quiet professional. He did it out of love, the love of Christ and love for all of us. And, and then he quietly moved out west. And so I want you to not so quietly express your belated gratitude to Mark. Mark, good to see you today. You can stand so people can remember you if you want. He doesn't want to stand. <laughs> So many people in this congregation that are humble like me, I just, uh, that's it. Now, this is, I think, our last shot at this, the angel tree, which is uh, for gifts for children in the area that may not otherwise receive them. It's Angel Tree Salvation Army. Used to be called Treasures for Children. And this is the last, I think next Sunday is the last time you can bring them in or throughout the week if possible. And these are appropriate gifts for children ages six months to 13 years old. I've been warned year after year that does not include guns or knives. And that's what I used to get when I was six months to 13 years old. But return, that's Vermont for you, but return unwrapped gifts no later than Sunday, December 4th. And I guess that's next week. Gifts will then be dis- delivered to the Salvation Army New Kensington to be distributed to local child in need. This is a very worthy collaboration we have with, I think, a very worthy organization, the Salvation Army. So keep that in mind and keep that also in prayer. In the years before this, we've had many, many hundreds of children that have been blessed through your generosity and kindness. So we want to keep that up. Hebrews chapter 8. Today I'm going to hit you with a couple of vocabulary words to start off with, and I hope you don't get too riled up by that. But the first one is simply cosmology. Cosmology is simply made of two Greek words, cosmos plus logos. That's a word for universe in the Bible. Sometimes it's used negatively for a world system that is a system that it's antagonistic to Christianity, but generally speaking, that means universe. Logos means the word. So the word about the universe, cosmology, the Bible's pretty big on this subject. So is science, and so is so-called science, called scientism, which isn't science at all, but an ideology-based error that has a lot of minds captured today. Cosmos plus logos, that's Cosmology. Now, there's also cosmogony, which is C-O-S-M-O-G-E-N-Y, and that's what comes from cosmos plus genesis, the origin of the universe. There was, according to science, they call it a Big Bang origin. According to other metaphysics, it was a, an act of cosmogenesis, made by a divine creator, designer, architect. That's, of course, the biblical view, and it's a sensible, reasonable view. It's an intelligent view, contrary to claims against it. So cosmology, cosmogony. And then there's, of course, this one. This is the one you might get mad at me about because I've been doing German words lately. It's called Weltanschauung, W-E-L-T-A-N, One word, S-H-A-U-U-N-G, pronounced Weltanschauung, and that's what we call worldview, only it's a little better word, it captures a lot more of the nuances of meaning. Weltanschauung is what we call worldview. In my notes, and 
it may seem like I'm teaching less than usual, less frequently than usual. I am teaching less frequently than usual, but studying more intensely than ever. And so I will start to do a few more nights in the near future. But Weltanschauung is what I call, in my notes, this is ingenious, by the way, a, a shorthand way of saying worldview. Worldview. Also looks like mountains. It's WV, worldview. So, Weltanschauung and cosmology. So whether you know it or not, and I like to do this as painlessly as possible, I like to teach the Bible in a way that also gives you kind of an education in theology, and that's been my goal over the past, well, few years. So far, let's look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Our translation, my translation from the original Greek text says this. Now, the sum of what we are saying is this. We've hovered over this passage for a long time now because why? Because this is the sum of what he's saying. The sum of what we're saying is this. We have an archpriest, otherwise known as high priest, who is of such significance that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's the highest point in the heavens, which symbolizes the fact that he has control over the whole of the universe. It's a control based on a determination of grace and universal mercy and unrestricted love. I'm going to be leading up to the idea that the cosmogenetic act, the act that brought the cosmos into being, was an act of unimaginable love unimaginable love brought into being the cosmos. And it's unimaginable love that redeems the cosmos from what went wrong when the sin of the first man passed into all the cosmos and with it death. And this Lamb of God whom we worship takes away the sin of the cosmos it says, cosmos, sin right out of the universe. And that ends what science calls entropy, but that's for another time. I'm not a scientist. I'm not even really a metaphysicist, but you have to be a little bit to be a student of the Bible. Metaphysics is another thing. Metaphysics is primarily concerned with the construction of the universe, with the construction of all things. It looks at it from a bigger view than physics. That's why it's called metaphysics, beyond physics. So you can't help get, let's get metaphysical. So you can't help it. But we have an archpriest who is seated in the highest region of the heavens. These are the higher heavens. And it's called entus, entois uranois is the word, the way I look at it in the Greek. And I, look, I don't look at the New Testament unless I look at the Greek anymore because it was written in the Greek. But en means in. This is a plural article. Entois and then uranois. O-U-R-A-N-O-I-S. That's a plural ending, plural article. Entois uranois, so in the heavens. And these are the higher heavens that are part of an integral universe, but they are a supernatural tier of the universe. So we have an archpriest who is such significance that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, that's God the Father, also known as the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man. You see every archpriest, meaning under Aaron and under the Levitical order, under Moses' law, every archpriest all the way up to the time of A.D. 70 when this priesthood was practiced, Every archpriest appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this priest also have something to offer. That something to offer takes up the whole of Hebrews 10, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 8, the whole central section. He offered himself. The 
priest is the lamb, the lamb is the priest. In fact, if he were on earth, now here's another word, another phrase. Epi means upon or on, and then geis, G-E-S, epigeis. So we have in the heavens, on the earth. This takes in all of the cosmos, in the heavens, on the earth. So it says, if he were on earth, epigeis, he wouldn't even be a priest. He would not be a priest. We have a heavenly priest. Since earthly priests are those who offer gifts prescribed by the law, that's Moses' law, which gifts serve as a mere copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Copy and shadow. Just as Moses was instructed when he was about to erect the tabernacle or the earthly tent, God said to him, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. Moses went up on a mountain. It says three times he went up on a mountain. The same phrase is used for Jesus. Went up on a mountain, gave us the Sermon on the Mount, because he's the new Moses, the new lawgiver. And there's a lot to be said about that for the new covenant community. So the second beginning of our message today, I want to give you thesis number one, thesis. The cosmology you hold, that is the one you believe, the one you hold to, has profound real-life consequences. Not only personally, the cosmology you hold and believe or hold to or cherish has profound individual real-life consequences, psychological consequences, consequences that affect mental and emotional health, consequences that are societal even, that spread out into all society. The cosmology that a society holds or believes or cherishes is largely determinative of the health of that society, at least psychologically and sometimes emotionally. For you can hold a cosmology that gives no meaning to life. And if there's no meaning to life, well, you see what happens by looking at the news. Second thesis, the eschatology you hold has profound real-life consequences. Now, what's eschatology? Getting kind of basic today, but I think you can endure it. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschaton. We've done this many times before, which means last plus logos, last things, end time things. And again, you've got a lot of weird eschatology circulating today, mainly because of the Christian fantasies that are circulating and things about the rapture, the tribulation, the beast, 666, etc. Total misreading of the scripture, most of it. Eschaton plus logos. The eschatology you hold has profound real-life consequences also, psychologically, emotionally, individually, even societally, and certainly across the realm of what we call the church, the New Covenant community. The New Covenant community is the fourth manifestation of vertical finality, and that's something we're going to get into. i just like to throw that out there because you say, what the heck does that mean? And you'll find out in subsequent weeks and years. I mentioned that word first when we had the inaugural message of this Alamo, place of my last stand at least, I think. When we started off many years ago, I used that word vertical finality. We're going to find out what that means. That has real life consequences too. Eschatology has to do with the destiny of the cosmos. Cosmogony has to do with its genesis, its initial inauguration, but eschatology has to do with the destiny of the cosmos and the destiny of all humanity together with the cosmos. There is a connection between humanity and the cosmos, and there is a connection in our destiny. The obvious thing about this is having an internal effect on people is if you hold an eschatology in which billions of people are going to go to a, 
a hell of damnation, a damnation hell, an eternal hell, and burn forever and ever without relief as a so-called loving God watches on along with redeemed people. If you hold that eschatology, I'm t I guarantee you, if you really believe that, you're not going to be psychologically well. You, 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 and a society that believes it, a society called the church that believes it cannot be psychologically well. Two, they cannot properly present the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are therefore celebrating the deliverer born on Christmas Day, but who does he deliver? A lucky few, I guess. The eschatology you hold has profound real-life consequences psychological consequences, individual consequences, emotional consequences, sociological consequences, and consequences on the gospel. And so the third thesis, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, applies both to cosmology and the cosmogenetic act, which is the cosmogenetic act, is simply the act that brought the cosmos into being. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created, made the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. What is the beginning? It's an everlasting beginning. And as we've shown you before, the first two words in the Greek New Testament, Old Testament, Greek Old Testament, which is quoted all the time in Hebrews, Whenever Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, it quotes the Greek Septuagint, it's called. So the first two words in the Greek Septuagint are N-R-K, in the beginning, R-K, A-R-C-H-E. Now, later on, as we've seen before in Revelation, in fact, at the end of the Bible, Jesus himself, the Son of Man, says, I am the R-K. I am the beginning. I am the beginning and the end. So he is in himself the cosmogenetic act. He is in him, in Jesus Christ and him crucified, is the beginning in which the heavens and the earth are created. And so it's not a, it's not a temporal beginning. It's an eternal, everlasting beginning that stands all the time. That's why Isaiah 48, 7 says, don't say you know about the creation of all things as if it happened long ago. I create them now. Now. Isaiah 48, 7. How do you figure that? Because there's a now that stands. There's a moment of the creation of the heavens and the earth that is NRK. The first two words in the Greek Bible then is in Christ. In Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. If any of you are in Christ Jesus, and you are, guess what? New creation. New creation is, has its very definition by those who are in Christ Jesus. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, there's the new creation. The new creation. The new creation is simply creation itself rendered new by redemption by an act of redemption. And so I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified applies very definitely to the cosmogenetic act. What I'm trying to articulate is something that's inarticulable, something you, it can't be articulated as far as I know. That's why I should probably pray for the gift of tongues again. Now, no, I'm going to pray for the gift of articulation. That's more sane, actually. The point that I'm making is when Jesus said to Telestai, that is the cosmogenetic act. That's the act that brought the new creation into being and therefore really completed creation in the beginning. See, you can only get hints of this. We're not here to communicate the Bible. We're here to let God communicate himself through the scriptures, through the spirit, and there is required a response on your part, but the response can only be proper to a communication of God if God himself creates the response. That's why gift 
There's a gift called faith. And faith is obedience. And there's a gift called faith, obedience. And our obedience to the communication of God himself is God himself in us, willing and working according to his own pleasure. These aren't things that are, the things I've said so far in the second phase of this message are not things that are meant to be instantly understood, but things that require meditation and the Holy Spirit to teach what they mean. Now, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified has an objection to it. Why do you say that, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2.2? Why do you say that? People have said to me, there's nothing in here about the resurrection. And I would beg to differ. Christ and him crucified in the very tenses of the Greek means Christ and him having been crucified but remaining the crucified Christ in resurrection and ascension where he's seated next to the Father in the highest heavens as our great interceding arch priest. I happen to read it. I think I get this thing from, I get these websites and sometimes they say, do you want to subscribe? And I go, yeah, if it looks good. This one was called Mercy Upon All. I put subscribe. So once in a while they send me something, they sent me the advertisement of a book and there was a tiny quote in the book from Athanasius who was one of the early church fathers and the quote from Athanasius said, resurrection is stored up in the cross. Resurrection is stored up in the cross. And therefore, Already in the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection is inevitable. The resurrection is stored up in the cross. When we speak of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're glorying in a, an act of redemption. But we're also glorying in an act of creation. Where I went with that is, there, is here. Stored up in the cross is also creation. The creation of all things, the creation. When we are finally with the Lord in front of the Father and before his face and see God's face in the beatific vision and the whole of the universe is recreated and transfigured and glorious and glorified and life is unlimited, our life is not only everlasting, but it's an unlimited experience of life all at once and always. When we're there, when we're at that moment, we're going to realize that the act that brought this new creation into being wasn't God crying from a high throne, be created. It was Jesus crying from the cross, it is finished. That's the moment. It's creation through crucifixion. Crucifixion resulting in resurrection, glorification. The reason that the new creation is so glorious is because it was brought about by unimaginable suffering of the creator. And that's why Hebrews 2.10 says, it, it seemed fitting for God. It seemed fitting for him through whom are all things who brought all things into existence, that the founder of your salvation would be perfected through suffering. The founder of our salvation is the founder of creation. Nothing that ever came into being, ever came into being without him, without the Logos, without the word himself. And my whole striving in this last stand of mine for public teaching will be to show how the cosmogenetic act was Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so the creation is going to bear the marks of glory arising out of suffering. And the Lamb of God himself is always going to bear the marks of his suffering and the scars of his suffering. So it's going to be an entirely unique new creation. It's not going to just some, something that comes into being as a fiat of someone's creativity. It comes into being through the crucifixion of the Son of God. I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Simply means that Paul, 
the apostle, and any preacher worth his salt is going to preach nothing detached from that centrality, that central theme. So to me, there's no detachment of cosmology from Christology, Christ. Why? Because the mystery of God's will, according to Ephesians 1.9, is to sum up everything and recapitulate everything in a new creation in Christ Jesus, in Christ. Cosmos in Christ. A cosmos in Christ. In Christ, God created the heavens and the earth. Not long ago, now. At the cross, and now, he's doing it now. If anyone is in Christ, there it is, a new creation. And it's ever fresh because it's almost like we could say it just came into being is always what it is. It just came into being. It just came into being. How fresh is that? How glorious is that? How the, the surprise of joy, in other words, never leaves us, ever. So with the interplay of heavenly in the heavens, which I wrote up there earlier, and earthly on earth, especially regarding the tent, and I got all this just from the tent, especially regarding the tent, the reference to a tent in the heavens constructed by the Lord and not man Hebrews 8.2, and terms in Hebrews like not made with human hands and not of this creation, that is the, the creation that is still determined by sin and death, not of this creation, Hebrews 9.11. Hebrews deals with distinctive, distinctive planes or strata of existence. Modes of exist existence. It has a specific cosmological worldview. All the scriptures do. All the writers of the scriptures do. And we in our arrogance, in our so-called modern arrogance, and I mean arrogance, because we assume that their cosmology was childish and primitive compared to ours, which has been evolved and adapted to the point where we know that the universe is a series of hurrying mass invisible particles hurrying without purpose through space. So there, look how smart we are. And I've even heard an intellectual that I respected, he's now with the Lord, and I think he's surprised that he is. But he tried to say that Genesis 1 was beautiful poetry. Now, that's nice. He, but he limited it to that. It's just beautiful poetry. It doesn't have, it's not intended to have cosmological meaning. It's, it's just Hebrew poetry. Well, that's an insult to the writers. It's an insult to, well, the Lord. It's an insult to the author of Genesis. So instead of just moving rapidly on, I decided, well, let me take these heavens and earth things. And throughout the study of reading about 10 commentaries on this, there's a debate as to whether the author of Hebrews is a Platonist. Was, did he know Plato? And was he influenced by Platonism? And I know, if you're like me, when I first heard Plato, I thought, yeah, that stuff smells really good, and you can, you know, Plato. No, never mind. They even made a perfume out of it. That would be a great aftershave, an aftershave that smells like Play-Doh. Come on. No, but this is Plato, P-L-A-T-O. He was a philosopher, of course. And his whole idea, and I had to look this up afresh in the dictionary, but it says, his Platonism asserts ideal forms as an absolute and eternal reality of which the phenomena of the world are imperfect and transitory reflection. In other words, the illustration is always there is up there this ideal, eternal, supernatural archetype called chair. Down here there are chairs. They reflect an ideal 
upper tier reality. That's Platonism. Now, because we have the tent on earth and the tent in heaven, does that mean that the author was a Platonist? Was he a follower of Plato? And it's likely that he knew Plato. It's likely that he knew Aristotle. It's likely that he knew a lot of things because he's a Hellenistic Jew, probably, and he's pretty smart and pretty educated. But whether the Hebrews homilist was educated in Platonism or not, he at least knew and understood Plato's assumption of a higher stratum of reality than this world of observable phenomena, corporeal things, and subatomic and atomic reality, quarks and etc. The earthly corporeal man-made tent or tabernacle that we read about here in Hebrews 8, and then again in Hebrews 9, 2, 9, 3, 9, 6, 9, 8, 9, 21, and 13, 10, was indeed a transitory reflection of a transcendent reality, the true heavenly tent. Hebrews 8, 2, we just read it. After which the earthly tent was to be patterned, we just read that, Hebrews 8, 5, God showed Moses on the mountain the heavenly pattern and said, construct an earthly tent after this pattern. And Moses didn't do it. He hired men to do it. And we know that there was a whole construction crew that put together and pitched this marvelous tent and its rooms and its furniture, all of which are very significant to us. And we'll look at those down the road. That's Exodus 25:40 quoted in its Septuagint form, in its Greek form, in Hebrews 8.5. It's the greater and more perfect tent, it says. Greater and more perfect tent, not made by human hands, that is, not of this creation. The man-made tent in question, therefore, in Hebrews 8, and again in Hebrews 9, is a corporeal thing, a material thing that reflects an ideal pattern in the heavens. It's a natural reality that provides an analogy by which to understand the supernatural reality of the heavenly tabernacle. So as Yahweh, the God of Israel, told Moses, see to it, Moses, that you make everything in the Old Testament tabernacle according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. Now, since Plato probably lived in the fourth centuries B.C., 5th and 4th centuries B.C., and Moses got that revelation from God about a thousand years earlier than that. Then we don't have to conclude that the author of Hebrews was influenced by Plato, though he was certainly influenced by Moses and by the Septuagint translation. And that shows me that the ancient Hebrew cosmology was at least as cutting edge as Greek cosmology under Plato, Aristotle, and others. The author's major influence was clearly the Old Testament scriptures, especially the Septuagint. So someone would say to me today, who is your your major influence? What is your major influence? I would say the scriptures. If you ask me who, I would have to say the Lord Jesus Christ. Second to that, Paul probably, then John, Peter, the apostles, Moses. But his major influence was clearly the Old Testament scriptures, especially the Septuagint. He quotes it often. We're going to see where he quotes it almost verbatim. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which takes up most of the second half of Hebrews 8 and speaks of the New Testament community or the New Covenant community, which is the fourth manifestation of vertical reality. I'll explain that down the road, not today. And so, along with the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and those who heard him speak about such a great salvation, how did Jesus speak of such a great salvation? By being lifted up on the cross, manifesting that great salvation in himself. And then followed by wonders and various kinds of miracles 
and distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. So in a combination of influence from the Septuagint and the message of the gospel writers and of the Lord himself who first spoke of this great salvation, those are the primary influencers of our author of Hebrews. Moreover, the earthly tabernacle corresponds to the true or heavenly tabernacle is not strictly a platonic idea. One thing that, a certain, that is certain, though, the PT, the pastor teacher, and he was that, who wrote Hebrews, is a metaphysicist or a metaphysician. His view or vision of the cosmos or the universe goes beyond the physical and therefore beyond physics. This view of the cosmos is part of what we call a world view. It's part of what we call, the Germans call, the Weltanschauung, which means the way they think about the world, the way we think about the world. Popularly, it's wrong to, the, the world thinks wrongly about the universe when it speaks of the universe as the determiner of your destiny. Well, the universe today did this for me, and the universe today did this to me, and I called out for the universe to do this for me, as if the universe is God. But that, if you want to talk about childish and primitive and backward worldview, call the universe God or attribute deity to the universe itself. Now, the universe isn't deity, but the universe is a theophany. God made the universe to be a manifestation of his invisible attributes. It says that in Romans 1.20. Paul's opponent actually quoted it, but Paul also agrees with the idea that the things that are visible and seen are, bear a testimony to the invisible attributes of the eternal God. So the world, the cosmos, is meant to be a theophany. Somebody who thinks that looks at the pictures and the photographs from the James Webb telescope and has a whole different idea than the person who thinks that reality is made up of invisible quarks hurrying through space without meaning or direction. Those two people have two different views of the universe and they have two different profound psychological makeups. And so that's what I'm talking about today. Your cosmology has a profound influence. And I've seen it in when I used to do more counseling than teaching, believe me, I've seen the psychological influence of people who believe that the universe is going to be destroyed and burned up, that most of humanity is going to be destroyed and burned up and go to hell and never have any relief for the rest of time and eternity. Somebody that really believes that, you tell me that's not going to affect their psychological makeup. Well, they run for refuge to the gospel. Well, I invited Jesus into my life, so I'm not going there. But if you're still normal, if you're thinking that your parents are, that's going to be psychologically damaging, I think, if you're normal. Or if you do what Jesus said to do, which is to love one another. How can you love one another and be happy about people going to hell? There are Hundreds of Christians, I've read them recently, they're happy that people go to hell because it's a tribute to God's justice and holiness. And I just have to say, bullshit. <laughs> I can't say any, well, sorry about that. If you're new here today, I'm not a, a proper person. I try to be, but it just keeps backfiring. Just keep reverting back to the stump-jumping, syrup-sucking hill runner. Now then, if we're going to properly interpret Hebrews or any other biblical document, and I found this out about halfway through my career, we're going to have to go beyond a mere lexical exegesis where you look up the Greek word and say, this is what it means, and so it must mean that in this verse. And it doesn't always mean that in that verse. So you have to go deeper than just a lexical exegesis. You have to go beyond the historical circumstances called isagogics in which the document was written. You have to go beyond that. We have to come to an understanding of the prevailing worldview. In other words, of the biblical author and his intended readership. The German word 
Weltanschauung is a better word than worldview because it expresses a nuance of meaning that at least connotes contemplation of a metaphysical or mystical sort. So it's how a people or culture thinks about the world in general. It's related to cosmogony and cosmology, that is this worldview, because cosmology is the study of the universe and cosmogony deals specifically with its origin, its cosmogenesis, cosmogenesis, the genesis of the cosmos, specifically with a cosmogenetic act. Genesis 1.1, Hebrews 1.10. In the beginning, Lord, you brought the heavens and earth into being. They shall perish, but you remain. We're going to explain that as we wind to a close. So we of the modern era may have that idea. In fact, many cases, we proudly cherish the idea that the worldviews of the ancients were primitive and childish, even infantile, compared to our modern worldview. But that's just another result of not reading the Bible properly and understanding its symbolism, just like people read Revelation without understanding the metaphorical symbolism there. And they end up trying to look for an antichrist in the future. They end up looking for a seven-year tribulation in the future when it's already in the past, when 666 already identified Nero Caesar in the time of the writing of the satirist John and the prophet John. And so they go to all these weird eschatological things, and it warps you psychologically. You cannot believe the eschatology that I once believed and not go a little nuts, which explains me in the present day. So I'm in the process of getting better. So we have to look at the worldview of the people. As we might think that the authors of the Bible were childish, and we've put away childish things, to quote Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. We assume our modern scientific purview is one that's evolved along with human beings and human cultures, so naturally we put away such childish things as ancient Hebrew cosmology that determines the books of Genesis, Job, and Isaiah. And speaking of Job, I once had my, a dear relative of mine who is a once an atheist, but now a naturalist brain surgeon, as I've mentioned many times before, gave me a book uh, by Carl Jung on God's, the book of Job and Job's answer to God. And he said, this, read this. And I did, and it was one of the most childish and stupid things I've ever read that tried to interpret Job. It was, it was the most ridiculous and childish, and I, I had to say, I almost said that to my cousin. I might have. <laughs> we did have one discussion over the phone that was three hours long, and um, I kind of collapsed afterwards because I was just tired of fighting. But we assume the ancient Hebrew cosmology that determines the books of Genesis, Job, Isaiah, and the cosmologies of the ancient Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, the middle, medieval metaphysics of Aquinas, Meister Eckhart, who is a mystic from the medieval times, we assume that's all childish. The idea that we've greatly improved on these ancient and medieval worldviews is in fact part of an ideology that's largely rooted in ignorance and fantasy rather than fact and reality. And I mentioned before, to de degrade or downgrade the first chapter of Genesis and call it beautiful poetry on the one hand, or to a childish, uninformed cosmogony on the other, discloses not a superior knowledge, but a profound and often arrogant ignorance of the Weltanschauung of biblical writers and other ancient philosophers and metaphysicians, and it's an insult to their in most cases, superior intelligence. In other words, Moses was smarter than Stephen Hawking. A lot smarter. Moses had a multifarious genius that is infinitely superior of intelligence 
than almost anyone you can point to today as someone with superior intelligence. Same with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's writings are so often misunderstood because he has a superior intelligence to all those people, including myself, who study him. And so you have to put yourself in the man's shoes as one who saw Jesus of Nazareth on the outskirts of Damascus and saw things that are unspeakable and inarticulable. And so when he wrote, he was trying to articulate the inarticulable. Paul has a lot of critics, including Nietzsche. And I love that sign where Nietzsche's marching around with a sign that says, God is dead. And then you see in the next phase, God has a sign that says, Nietzsche is dead. <laughs> the Weltanschauung of the ancient Hebrews included the supposition that the universe or the cosmos is a theophany. That's a manifestation of God, but not God. It's not God, but it is a theophany. That's what Romans 1.20 is all about. And Romans 1.21 and following tells you what happens to a society that denies that and doesn't retain the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God manifested in the universe as a theophany. What happens to them when they don't retain that knowledge? And if you don't want to read Romans, then read present-day society in the West, and you'll find out what that is when you deny the universe as a theophany, the universe as a manifestation of divine attributes. And so, again, the major influence of this Hebrew writer is the Scripture. And these ancients believed that the universe was a theophany. A perfect example of that, and perhaps the best example of that, is the Psalm 19, which begins, it's an Aistotelos psalm, which means a psalm that's related to the end or regarding completion. It opens up this way, the heavens tell of the glory of God, very simply. And that includes the celestial heavens and the sky, the dome over the earth. When someone looks up into the sky and sees a telling of the glory of God, they're going to be psychologically different from someone who looks up into the sky and sees something utterly impersonal. In fact, if they are a follower of Rene Descartes, they see something that's not really there and that it's all in here. It's a perception in here. The blueness of the sky isn't blueness up there. It's in here. It's in my perception. So what's up there? Nothing. I think, therefore I am. My thinking is my existence. It is my identity. And I think that that's all an illusion. And the only thing that's real is my perception of what's out there. There's two different psychological things going on between those two people. The Psalm of David opens up with the words, the heavens tell of the glory of God and the dome of the sky, otherwise known as the firmament, proclaims the work of his hands. Simple, you say. Childlike, you say. Primitive, you say. Right on target, I say. The main takeaway of Romans 1.20, and we studied it, is that the cosmos is a theophany, as Psalm 19 also says. Romans 1.20 deals with the veiling or obscuring of the theophanic capacity of the cosmos. The prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, not only veils the minds of the unbelieving from the glory of the Christ, lest the light of that glory shines into them, transforming them. He also puts a veil over the universe to rob it or veil its theophanic capacity, its capacity to be a theophany. And that's blindness indeed. That's a darkness that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, 8, not, 4, 18 and 19. Not only is it the darkening of the understanding, but it's an alienation from the very life of God that results from that. And so the prince of the power of the air, also known as the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, Ephesians 2, 2, is involved here. And that's what we're up against. Paul's opponent actually uses Romans 120's argument 
And Paul agrees with Romans 1.20 profoundly as a, the universe as a theophany. But what Paul disagrees with is the condemnation of his opponent on people who have turned away from the theophany. Paul isn't interested in showing the wrath of God on people that have denied the theophany in the world. Paul wants to save these people from the blindness of not seeing the cosmos as a theophany. And so he spends the rest of Romans talking about, or most of it, the Romans, the bulk of Romans, talking about a justification of the heathen and a justification of such people as us through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and not the faith of individual people. That's Romans 1.20 and following. Paul concurs with the universe as a theophany, but he turns the argument of the opponent who tries to make this reasoning into a condemnation of the heathen back on the opponent. Because when he gets to Romans 2.1, he says, but you're without excuse too. Showing a universal human accountability or culpability leading to God's gracious and universal solution. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus and justification achieved through Christ's faithfulness. So Hebrews 1.10, look at it. We're going to close in a moment. I always think of Richard Wormbrandt, who I had the privilege of seeing. Some of you may too have seen him, him and his wife Sabina, 14 years in a Russian communist prison camp, tortured every day. He said, first of all, he, preached, he wanted to preach a long time, so he says, I will be like Habakkuk. I will stand on my watch. Meaning, he can't tell time, so never mind. Then he says, I promise only to speak ten more minutes. I do not promise the length of each of those minutes. He had his own Weltanschauung. Hebrews 1.10, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. There it is. They will perish. See, the world, the universe is going to burn up, blow up. No, wait a minute. They will all wear out like a garment, and like a cloak, you will roll them up. You'll change them like a garment, but you're the same, and your years will never come to an end. Now, we've related the changing of the universe like a garment to a change of priesthoods because he talks about it as a garment. You can see photographs of galactic photographs of the new James Webb telescope, as I said last week, and there's actually folds in the universe that look exactly like a garment. And the bright spots in it look like bejeweled garments with folds and rolls in it. And that's God folding and rolling and rolling things up and throwing them out there and changing them out, not making them perish. But when a world is already perishing and you save it, what perishes is the perishing world. I'm going to try to, I'll try to summarize what, I'm, what I have before me instead of trying to lay it out. When a universe has had the entry of sin. Through one man's sin, sin entered into the cosmos and with cosmos, death. So right now, the cosmos, as beautiful as it is, is still determined by death and sin. So I would want a universe that's determined by death and sin to perish, and the way that it perishes is when sin is taken out of the cosmos, the perishing cosmos perishes, to become a new cosmos. That's the whole idea. It's not God burning up the universe. And oh, by the way, now that I'm burning up the universe, you're going in there too with the devil and his angels, all you people that are goats. That means Tom Brady's going to hell. You know that, right? He's a goat. He's going to hell. So, that's not the way it is. The wisdom of God is many-sided, according to Ephesians 3.10, manifesting itself in a variety of forms, and that means that the Word of God has many directions in its application. 
And so in 2 Peter 3, 10 to 14, for example, the heavens and the earth is a symbolic reference to the temple in Jerusalem because the temple in Jerusalem, I'm going to show this in a subsequent message, maybe on a Sunday, maybe on a Wednesday, where the whole temple, according to Josephus, he describes it in great detail in his book called The Jewish Wars, where certain things in the temple, the designs represent the seas, the ocean, the planets, the sun, the moon, the earth, time. And so when the universe, when the temple in Jerusalem represents the universe, therefore the burning up of the elements with fervent heat, as Peter talks about it, is not the dissolution of the material universe, it's the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But even that destruction of the temple in Jerusalem gave way to a temple which is Jesus Christ's resurrected body and the mystical body of Christ in union with him. So everything is redemptive. Everything creative is redemptive. Everything created in the beginning has a destiny in the end in Christ who said, I am the beginning and the end. I am the act that brought creation into being. I am the act that brings creation to its completion by redemption. So the creation is stunningly, unimaginably more beautiful than it would have been had Adam not fallen, had Christ not come and borne the sin of the world and become sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God. A universe that is strikingly, gloriously beautiful and indescribably so forever and ever in every moment of the forever because it emerged from the suffering of the Son of God. And the cosmogenetic act, therefore, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Don't say it was long ago. It was in A.D. 30, but it's also now. It's the now that stands. The heavens and the earth are slated to pass away, Jesus said. The heavens and earth will pass away, but my word does not pass away. That means that what's passing away is the cosmos infected by sin in Romans 5.12. When sin is removed from the cosmos, then the old cosmos passes away. With the creation of the new heavens and the new earth comes the passing away of the old heavens and the old earth. And with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem comes the temple, which is the whole Christ, head and mystical body. Body, which now consists of the new covenant community, the fourth manifestation of vertical finality, and which has yet to consist of all things comprised of Christ. That made me mentally well when I realized that all things are going to be recapitulated in Christ. And it dawned first when I read Ephesians 1.10, simply read it, simply read it. The recapitulation of all things in heaven and earth in Christ in the fullness of time, that is when all times become simultaneous at once. And then I just saw everything recapitulated in Christ that made me, well, it didn't solve all the problems of life because all the problems of life are the problems of life. They're always there. There's something always re unresolved. There's always some form of suffering going on. I know in my life there's always some form of suffering I can point to. Even when there's joy, there's a mixture of suffering. And the, I get great Solace out of the fact that Jesus Christ not only suffered for me at the cross, but suffers with me in my sufferings and with you in yours. So when the enthroned one in Revelation 21.5 says, behold, I'm making everything new, the enthroned one was Christ, the throne was his cross, his crown was made of thorns. Look, I'm making everything new. And when he had taken the sin out of the cosmos, guess what he said? It's done. In Revelation 21.6, 6, 
the enthroned God, spoke this time from his habitation in eternity and said, it is done. In the process of time and history, this is being accomplished, having been consummated at the cross, the moment when Jesus said, from his cross throne, wearing his thorn crown, to Telestai. So I will close with this thesis. It's a, it's a paragraph thesis. Thesis. I opened with three. I'll close with a fourth. Four is the number for the earth. Ancient Hebrew cosmology. This is kind of my distilled finality here. Ancient Hebrew cosmology was a result of attentiveness to the cosmos as a theophany, a manifestation of divinity. It was a result of attentiveness to the cosmos, a manifestation of divinity. David, on a hill, watching sheep, looking up into an unpolluted sky, unpolluted by human lights and natural lights, seeing the glory of God. So ancient Hebrew cosmology was a result of attentiveness to the cosmos as a theophany, a manifestation of divinity. This cosmology was an intelligent view of the universe in its totality, involving heavens and earth. It expressed a reasonable and enlightened metaphysical horizon. It was a worldview that was responsive and responsible to the revelation of God in Scripture. If you go from Psalm 19.1 on to 19.4 and following, he talks about the Scripture, the Word of God, converting the soul, related to the, he starts with creation as a theophany, universe as theophany, he goes into Scripture as revelation of God, and beyond the revelation of God in the Scripture is the self-revelation of Christ, as happened in Luke 24 when he manifested himself to the disciples. He gave all the scriptures, all of them, from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. They still didn't get it until their eyes were opened to see the full revelation of Jesus Christ in their midst at supper at the table. That, was a, that to me, was the original Thanksgiving dinner. And, thank, and they should be thanked Turkey was not involved. Now, Turkey's fine. So it was a worldview that was responsive and responsible to the revelation of God in Scripture and scriptural cosmology. It's a cosmology that is not adverse to true science. And it was an indispensable aspect of the Weltanschauung or worldview of a people commanded to love the Lord their God with all of their being and to love their neighbors as themselves. The ultimate then, if you'll notice that the five transcendent precepts, be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible, and be in love are all in that closing thesis, which I will read again and close. Ancient Hebrew cosmology was a result of attentiveness to the cosmos as a theophany, a manifestation of divinity. This cosmology was an intelligent view of the universe in its totality. It expressed a reasonable and enlightened metaphysical horizon. It was a worldview that was responsive and responsible to the revelation of God in scripture and of scriptural cosmology. It is a cosmology that is not adverse or against or opposed to true science. It was an indispensable aspect of the worldview of a people commanded to love the Lord their God with all of their being and to love their neighbor as themselves. Consistent with your cosmology and mine of the cosmos, the universe as a theophany, is love. Love for God, the creator. Love for those who were created by him. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity today to perhaps sympathize much more with the scriptures by sympathizing much more with the authors of scripture, by the, recipi the initial recipients of the word 
who truly held a way of thinking about the world and about the universe, one that was not childish, one that was not primitive, one that was not infantile or in any way unintelligent, one that was attentive, intelligent, reasonable, responsible, and in fact, one that yielded to love and a faith that works by love, one that went hand in hand with love. I pray, Father, that you'll restore all of us to the proper thinking about the world as a theophany, but I also pray that you'll restore it in the educational institutions of the West. That's a big request, but I ask that you will show the harmony of science with biblical revelation where it's necessary and where it is indeed able to be shown. I pray for many people, individuals, who begin to see this world as a theophany. I pray for their psychological healing, their mental healing, and even their emotional health. And I thank you, Father, that cosmology has profound real-life consequences. And so do ideologies that are against biblical revelation. They, too, have profound real-life consequences that are profoundly, profoundly destructive, fragmenting and polarizing our society. So, Father, may this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ in him crucified, travel far and wide, invade pulpits, invade minds, so that we may understand that all the human race is one in Christ Jesus and end the fragmenting and murderous divisiveness of our time by destroying the false ideologies that feed them. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Big request, but he'll do it. Thanks for your attentiveness.